Thank you, Joy, and thank you, Connections Church, for this invitation. I need to return the favor. After such a hyperbolic introduction, I have to tell you about Joy. Um, we have we have an award. Um, it's actually changed names over the years, um, but it's for the all-around best person, graduate, student, minister, um, friend, activist, you name it, um, in the student body each year. And when Joy graduated, she got that award. But not only that, I don't know. It, Maybe, maybe my memory is inflating things, but it, it feels like she got about five awards, which is about more than anybody ever does and top things in different areas. And um, this passage has a lot of names. <laughs> and I knew she could handle it. And not only that, but uh, wasn't that wonderful, the passion that she read with? I wish every text every week in every church were read with that kind of, of engagement rather than the pious monotone we so often hear. <laughs> and if my voice does not sound throughout the whole time 100%, it's because it's not, but don't worry. It's not COVID. When I hear people call me a distinguished professor and then try to unpack that, um, I find that very awkward. Um, yeah, it's a, a title, but um, I think it raises people's expectations much too high. Um, I studied New Testament studies, not preaching, so this will probably just be a mediocre sermon. Um, but in a sense, that actually ties in with um, something of what I want to do today. Now, somewhere there's supposed to be a PowerPoint slide show um, with a, a title slide that I hope we can find. and. If you can just leave that title slide up there for quite a while, I'll tell you when to um, change it. Um, you can puzzle over what I mean by that weird title, especially the parentheses. Um, anybody here feel like you should be called distinguished? <laughs> no, I mean, if you did, that would probably disqualify you. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I was a good student. Um, that's about all I was good at. Um, I learned quickly that in those days, what made you popular was not being uh, a top student, <clears throat> but um, having good looks, being a star athlete. Um, and by the standards of the day, I wasn't either of those. In fact, it was um, a Campus Life Youth for Christ Club in my high school when I was 15 um, that my best friend invited me to where for the first time I saw kids and not just 
fellow sophomores, but juniors and seniors as well, who took a genuine interest in me and, and looked past what later would come to be called nerdiness and geekiness. Um, those words hadn't even been invented yet when I was in school. We, we called people like me an egghead. Um, I don't know if there's anybody here old enough to remember that, but um, hearing a message of a God who unconditionally loved people, warts and all, and sometimes a whole lot worse than warts, was, uh, was an amazing message. I'd been brought up in church, and I suppose... That's part of the message that at least part of the time was being communicated, but I had never seen it in kids my age. And here was a place where I saw it. And that was probably the first time in my life when I began to experience the tug and the pull and the contest and the combat for my soul between following the world standards of everything that's good and glamorous and beautiful. And if we had had social media, cool on social media, <laughs> and what a whole lot of people throughout human history through trial and error had learned from the truth of God's word was really the way to happiness and contentment and becoming right with God and having an eternal meaning for one's life. That's an age-old tug and pull. And we, we see just a tiny glimpse of it here in this story. First Samuel is the ninth book of the Bible. Um, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to it. If you have a phone with a Bible app, I encourage you to turn to it. <clears throat> Since I'm a, <clears throat> a guest, I can say this, because I'll only be here one more time. If you don't bring a hard copy Bible or something that allows you to see the larger context of what the preacher's talking about, then you're missing out. And, and you need to become familiar, not just with the tiny little snippet that's put on the screen, but the overall flow of thought in biblical history. God is in the process of redeeming the people of the world, but he's doing it through the nation of Israel. We're slightly more than 1,000 BC, maybe closer to 1,100. Israel has occupied the land of Canaan, the promised land, but they've never succeeded in completely defeating their enemies. At this time, the, the arch enemies of Israel are, are called the Philistines. They tended to live along the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but they were occupying uh, different parts of Israel, trying to take back the land. And... Um, a series of leaders called judges 
You can read about them in a book called Judges. That's easy to remember. Um, <clears throat> had gone from bad to worse. And the people pleaded with the Lord for a king. And he relented. It, it wasn't his plan A. But he relented and through the prophet Samuel gave them a king. And that first king was a king named Saul. In the world's eyes, Saul had everything. If you read the entire book of 1 Samuel, or even just the first half, you'll discover he was head and shoulders taller than the rest of the people. He was good looking. He had leadership skills. He had military prowess. He had success in battle. Who else would you want for a king in, in wartime, especially? Saul had a son whose name was Jonathan. Jonathan turns out to be a very good warrior, but nothing is said about his size or his looks or his appearance or his leadership skills. What we learn if we read many chapters at once is that he had the gift of loyalty, of friendship, of love to those who were close around him, including to his father, including to his family, even when they abused him and mistreated him. Are you a Saul or a Jonathan? Or, or maybe the better question is, do you aspire to be a Saul? Or do you aspire to be a Jonathan? Or in a world that is not all that binary, <laughs> maybe sometimes the best we can hope for is to be a Sonathan or a Jal. At least have some of the traits of Jonathan, even if we're still stuck with some of the traits of Saul. I'm so grateful to Joy for reading the text because that means I don't have to read it again. But we're going to show it to you bit by bit. So if we could have the first uh, slide with some text on it. Oh, sorry. First we're going to have a map. No, there was a slide. Good. I thought that was the first one. We pick up the story in the middle of a very tense situation where the Philistines are advancing. It looks like they have the Israelites hemmed in and they have been sending raiding parties out in three different directions in order to further demoralize the nation of Israel, in order to further weaken their position. And yes, let's go to that map. And if you can see Micmash, um, right about where Denver is in Colorado, if that's the Colorado Square. <laughs> and then Giba, also called Gibeah, down here, um, I don't know what's down there. Uh, 
Uray or something like that. This is for Colorado. <laughs> um, and the three different ways that you see there, the way to Ophrah, the way of the border, um, and the, the wadi or the dry gulch coming down to the southeast, is where the raiding parties were sent out. There was one major ravine, one major highway, if you want to use that language, not like ours, big wide dirt road, between Michmash and Gibeah. And if you remember anything about Israel, the Philistines to the west by the Mediterranean Sea, um, they have made such inroads that they've pretty much surrounded this one little outpost of Geba. Not to mention that earlier in chapter 13, we read in verse 2 that Saul had 3,000 men. That's a good-sized army. But in verse 5, that the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numbers numerous as the sand on the seashore. They're horribly outnumbered. <clears throat> and as, as the chapter progresses, we see that people are fleeing, they're deserting, they're leaving Saul's army. They don't want to have anything to do with the slaughter that's about to come. <clears throat> so that by the, by the time we get to the threshold of our passage in verse 15, we see that his troops have shrunk all the way down to 600. It gets worse. Next text slide. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel. If you're not into Western pioneer history, you maybe don't remember what blacksmiths do. <laughs> but among other things, they work with metal. They sharpen tools. The Philistines had already advanced in the use of iron beyond what Israel had. But Israel was learning. And for a time during peacetime, for a price, uh, Israelites could go to Philistine blacksmiths and get swords and spears sharpened and fit. But now we're told this is, this is becoming uh, exorbitantly costly. They haven't stopped doing it, but the price is put up so high that very few Israelites can afford it. And so at the end of this little section, it says on the day of the battle... Not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan, except for those two, Saul and Jonathan, had an actual metal sword or spear. They would have been using bows and arrows, um, slingshots, like David's famous later battle with Goliath, um, probably some clubs of some kind, but uh, outnumbered and technologically at a, at a huge disadvantage. Next slide. <coughs> so, remember Micmash on the map up there at Denver? Troops are coming out from that. 
heading toward Geba. The pass at Michmash is being fortified. Chapter 13, verse 23. And then starting the new chapter, one day, don't you love that? Just one day, out of the blue, no context, wonder what was happening. Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Already a hint of some tension between Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan figuring that letting Saul know that would not necessarily enhance his chances in battle. One more slide. Oh, this is the terrain. It's not a flat plain. It's not where ancient armies like to do battle. It's not what you see in Lord of the Rings. If you like those battle scenes. Michmash would have been up here near the top, Geba down the bottom, one main valley road between the two, deep canyons and crevasses elsewhere. That's going to become significant. Now we have a text slide. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron, probably a large, very old historic landmark, um, maybe part of a grove with a lot of shade and a place where ancient generals often would, uh, in the middle of battle, in camp, <coughs> excuse me. With him were his 600 men. And the rest of this makes it look like Saul is trying to do things as God would want. He's got a priest with him, Ahijah, wearing the ephod, the garment that had two large pockets in it. Um, containing what were called the Urim and the Tumim. We're not exactly sure what they were, but probably a black stone and a white stone. And you randomly pulled one out if you had a, a decision to make that could be made by a yes or a no. <coughs> there is uh, an interesting ancestry. Why are we given all these names? We don't know anything about Ichabod or Ahitub or but eventually you get back to Eli. Eli the old and soft and easily corrupted priest at the time of Samuel's infancy and childhood. Eli who couldn't discipline his sons and they went wild and then Eli in the shock of hearing all of it fell over backwards over a wall that he was sitting on and was killed. These are ominous signs. The, the readers knew the story. We need to read the stories more so that we recognize these illusions. Saul looks like he's trying to do it in God's way, but there are ominous overtones. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. 
Seriously? You don't know what your kid's doing, King Saul? King Saul? It's not as good as it could have been. Next slide. You saw the cliffs. They even had names. They were so famous. <laughs> One called Bozes and the other Senna. One facing Michmash to the north, actually the northeast, and the other to the southwest toward Geba. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Which is a way of saying they're not part of us. They're, they're Gentiles. They're not Israelites. They're not part of God's covenant community. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. I find that absolutely fascinating. There is not the cockeyed confidence here that you sometimes hear in Christian circles. I know that the Lord has said to me, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Loyal armor bearer, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, I'm with you heart and soul. Is, is this Don Quixote and Sancho Panza? Um, against all odds going to tilt and joust at windmills. Are these two crazy boys? Or should we think of them as Frodo and Samwise? If you're into Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Or should we think of them as the latest two superheroes that should make it into the next Marvel movie? I don't know that we're supposed to know yet. But Jonathan said, come on then, we'll cross over and let them see us. We'll come out into the open. We'll see how they react. And he puts out what we might call a fleece. Both of these young men would have known the story a few hundred years earlier of Gideon. You can read it in Judges 6 to 8. Of uh, Gideon leading the armies of Israel into battle against the Philistines with hugely outnumbered troops. And yet God brought a victory. But Gideon didn't just assume that was going to happen. He had come up with a way of testing to see if, if God was in it. And Jonathan does the same thing. If they say, let us come down to you, wait there till we come to you, then we'll stay put. Probably because that meant, okay, we're going to come in a show of force. We're going to put you in your place. As long as you don't attack us, we won't kill you, but we're going to make you run back to your camp with your, your tail between your legs. <laughs> but if they say, come up to us, we will climb up 
because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. And you go, well, wait a minute, that's totally counterintuitive. You're going to climb up one of those cliffs, and then at the top of the cliff, like in the movies where, you know, you see the guy who steps on the superhero's hand here, and then he's dangling just by one, and then he steps on that, and he grabs the cliff with the other. No, this is probably, I, th I think Joy read it perfectly. This, this is uh, utter complacency. This is cocksuredness. This is, there's no way you're even going to try, are you, Johnny boy? <laughs> That's short for Jonathan. I just made that up. Thank you. I wasn't getting any reaction, so I had to see if you're still there. Come up to us as if you could, as if you would dare. We don't even need to keep watch for you. Two kids, seriously? What are you going to do to us? And that's their sign. Next slide. Yet another segment of this terrain. You can see how at some points people could be talking to each other across the, the mountains. You can see just the very top of a very deep crevasse that we'll see better in the next photo. Um, all kinds of places where people could hide. Can't hide a huge army, but you can hide two good mountain climbers. Next text. So they showed themselves to the Philistines and the Philistines react in the way that Jonathan says gives them hope that God is in it and that they're gonna be able to defeat them. And so they climbed up, probably some hidden route. They would have known the terrain better than the Philistines because they had occupied it far longer. Probably a hidden trail for part of it, probably, as it says, going on hands and knees, probably surprising an outpost, an armor bearer could have held multiple weapons. Jonathan could have shot off who knows how many bows and arrows um, in a very quick period of time, the element of surprise, catching people unprepared, and it says that they actually killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Next slide. Oh yeah, that's, that's what we couldn't entirely see on the last slide. Um, but you also see some ledges and you see some ridges and you don't see a lot of other stuff around there. Lots of possibilities for the element of surprise. Next slide. Then panic struck the whole army. The earth was shaking, it was a, a tremor. People in the ancient Near East often believed that this was a bad omen from the gods. There was an earthquake or even the beginning of tremors. And this was a perfectly timed tremor by the one God of the universe. There already had been some Israelites who had gone over to the Philistines. 
they, they saw the writing on the wall. But now they were emboldened to have some hope. There were all kinds of those people that had deserted Saul, but they hadn't gone back home. They hung around in caves and crannies in the rocks to see what would happen. So Israel almost has a fifth column behind enemy lines and others who start coming out. Look, the Israelites are coming out of the holes. Really looked that way. And Saul hears about it and does one of his better things. <laughs> Marches into battle. And there is a glorious victory. This story continues on one more slide. And at the end, we read, on that day, the Lord, not Saul, not even Jonathan, saved Israel. But we know that at the human level, Jonathan was the catalyst, not his dad, the king, Saul. Two very different kinds of people here. Saul, who hangs back, is not a risk taker. And then when he does take some risks, he doesn't do them God's way. He tells the priest, take away the ephod. Let's stop consulting God. Something's going on. We got to just get out there and get in the fray. Jonathan, who wants to do it God's way, but doesn't want to be foolhardy. That, that perhaps continues to haunt me. What would have happened if the Philistines had said, wait, let us come to you. The story would have had a totally different ending. Jonathan wasn't prepared to engage them if that's what happened. There's, there's actually three options here, not two. It's, it's not just a case of the brave, the risk takers who are victorious versus uh, he who hesitates is lost. There's a third option that Jonathan makes sure to avoid, a foolhardy risk taker. Is it fair to say that the point of this story is to take realistic risks? I've known people, I'm sure you have, maybe you resemble these remarks, who are so cautious, so concerned about everything that can go wrong in any proposed endeavor, especially in Christian circles, that they, they never take any risks. They don't go the extra mile. They sometimes never go the first mile. And I've known people, and maybe you've known them, and 
maybe you resemble some of them, who are ready to enter every fray for the cause of Christ without considering the cost, without seeing if God truly is in it. And sometimes they may have superficial victories, but other times things turn out disastrously. They're unrealistic risk takers. Jonathan seems to suggest a third way. At the risk of sounding like an oxymoron, I think he exemplifies what it means to be a realistic risk taker. There have been plenty of times in my life when I've been like Saul and been too cautious and too fearful. And then maybe came in at the end to, uh, on somebody else's coattails, get a little bit of the glory. There have been times when I've been too foolhardy. Rushed in too fast. Not sought the Lord's will adequately. What are you struggling with? In the summer of 2022. Is it still health related concerns? Like so many of us? Is it financial? COVID hasn't been easy on our pocketbooks. And now we've got inflation on top of that. Is it relational? Kids just aren't what you hoped they would be. Or someone else in the family or a close friend, there's some tension, there's some estrangement. Or boss at work, what, whatever the situation. Are you tempted to resign yourself to the fact that nothing's gonna change? not be a risk taker at all and try to deal with anything? How about Growing Connections Church? Can I be really blunt? You don't have to invite me back. In fact, you can tell me you don't want me next week. Your website says you have 100 people. I don't believe it. Oh yeah, you lose half of them in the summer sometime, but there aren't even 50 in this room. What's with that? And I could say that to my own church also because we're having the same problems. Where is everybody? Are they just staying home because they got used to that during COVID? Are we not reaching out to them? Are we not reaching out to other? Uh, sounds like you got a, a lot of good things going on. That's great. Or maybe you just need to revise your website. Oh, that would be a sad admission. Are you going to take some risks? Try to build things up again? Are you going to do something foolhardy? And then it's all going to come, oh yeah, we can build the church up again 
we're going to have a rally. We're going to invite a famous person come in and prepare for a thousand. No, that's probably not realistic. <laughs> but are you willing to be a realistic risk taker? All Jonathan and his armor bearer did was kill 20 people. Now, that's not bad. That's 10 for each one of them. But that didn't win the war. That didn't even win the battle. What that likely would have done was gotten the Philistines so enraged that they would have come out and massacred the Israelites. But God was in it. And so he brought a great victory. Not that Jonathan and his armor bearer pulled it off, but they were the catalyst for the next stage and then the next stage and more people and more people until it was a great and glorious victory. As we hit that point in the summer that we all dread, it's called the end of it. Can you look to the fall with excitement and enthusiasm in your family, in your church, in your workplace, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your financial giving to connection? Not with some grandiose, unrealistic scenario, but with the next level up whatever that might look like, which then can be the springboard to the level beyond that and someday to another level. I think that's what this otherwise bizarre passage might be calling us to in the 21st century. Shall we pray? Lord, only you know the hearts of each person here. We're thankful that they're here today when others are not. We pray that you would help those who are here and those who aren't to recommit their lives to you, to this church, to the use of their spiritual gifts for the upbuilding of the church so that we gather again in a year's time, we can see the difference. <coughs> we can see the difference for good, for godliness, for following Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.